0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 286, Sumter's Law. Last week, we covered a number of battles and skirmishes throughout South Carolina in early 1781. The Battle of Guilford Courthouse had left the British Army under General Cornwallis decimated. He retreated to Hillsborough and then to Wilmington in North Carolina to claim British control of that colony, but he really just needed to recuperate and regroup. General Greene moved his Continentals into South Carolina, where he attacked several British outposts, forcing the British to abandon Camden and withdraw the bulk of their forces in the state back to the area around Charleston. Green made great use of Colonel Francis Swamp Fox Marion during this time, as well as Light Horse Harry Lee and William Washington. One key officer that I didn't mention last week was South Carolina General Thomas Sumter, who had been injured in late 1780 at the Battle of Blackstock. It was at that battle that Sumter got his nickname the Gamecock, after British Colonel Bannister Tarleton noted that Sumter fought like a Gamecock. Due to his injuries, Sumter spent a few months recuperating at a friend's plantation. The British still had a price on his head, so he had to lay low while he recovered. Sumter managed to avoid most of the major battles in the Carolinas. He had been retired when the British captured Charleston. He was detached from the main army under Horatio Gates when they attacked Camden. He missed the Battle of Kings Mountain because he was away trying to find... Governor Rutherford to confirm whether he had the authority to command South Carolina's army, and he was recovering from his wounds during the race to the Dan and the Battle of Guilford Courthouse. This is not to say he wasn't active. He fought a bunch of smaller battles and skirmishes during a time when the Continental Army had largely abandoned the Carolinas. His reputation had only grown during this time as the commander of a guerrilla army that prevented the British from restoring the King's peace to the Carolinas. Sumter's injury at Black Rock had occurred only days before General Greene had taken command of the army. So while the two men had corresponded, they never met in person or fought a battle together. Sumter had been upset when Green gave General Daniel Morgan command of an army that was fighting along the Carolina frontier. Morgan was executing a strategy that Sumter had recommended. Even if Sumter was not well enough to take command, Sumter felt slighted that Green had given the command to Morgan without consulting him. For a time, Sumter caused problems by ordering South Carolina militia not to obey any order that did not come from him. This was power politics between the militia in the southern states and the Continental Army, something that had been a problem since the beginning of the war. Sumter absolutely continued this problem. Green learned about these divisions and wrote to Sumter, trying to soothe the Gamecocks' ruffled feathers. Sumter eventually made nice with Morgan and did what he could. From his sickbed, Sumter coordinated intelligence and logistical support for the Continentals. The war moved into North Carolina for a time, and Morgan eventually had to return home to Virginia. Following Guilford Courthouse in March 1781, Green returned to South Carolina, with Sumter still out of the saddle due to his injuries Green relied primarily on Colonel Marion for local leadership. But Greene assured that he would respect Sumter's command of all South Carolina forces. Now, by this time, Sumter had recovered sufficiently to ride and eventually did get back in the field. He had begun skirmishing with British outposts and supply chains in South Carolina again, even while the main Continental Army was still in North Carolina. I mentioned last week that Sumter had attacked Fort Watson before Marion and Lee eventually took the fort. As the spring fighting began, however, Sumter found most of his army disappearing. Militia enlistments had expired, and the men needed to return home for their spring planting. He needed his own army of South Carolina regulars. While regulars usually made better and more reliable soldiers, the problem was that you had to pay them. Civil government in South Carolina did not really exist after the fall of Charleston, so Sumter took it upon himself to come up with a scheme of payment for his new army. The pay deal for the new army eventually became known as Sumter's Law. He offered recruits new uniforms and supplies, which he had from raids on enemy supply depots. He also offered the soldiers the right to two-thirds of the plunder that they took from the enemy, with the remaining third becoming army property. The main exception was military supplies, which would remain army property. Even so, this was not enough to encourage many men to leave their farms and sign up for long-term enlistments. So Sumter resorted to some of the most valuable property in the state. Slaves. Every recruit who signed up for a 10-month stint would get his own slave at the end of enlistment. Officers, of course, got more. A colonel would get three and a half slaves for a year of service. And when we talk about a half a slave, a slave that was over the age of 40 or under the age of 10 would be considered half. The army would capture slaves from Loyalist plantations for this purpose. Recruiters received one slave for every 25 soldiers that they enlisted. The decision to pay for an army with captured slaves was, even at the time, a controversial one. Colonel Marion refused to participate in the recruitment of soldiers under these terms. Uh, This is not to say that there were abolitionists in South Carolina, because there really weren't. But many saw that systematically stripping property from civilians as a bad precedent. This practice might encourage more loyalists to enlist with the enemy and protect their property. There were also those who saw the inevitable separation of slave families as being inhumane. Despite objections, the policy went into effect. Governor Rutledge gave the plan his tacit approval. Colonel Andrew Pickens raised his quota under Sumter's law. General Greene expressed concerns to Sumter about plunder generally, but ignored weighing in on the slaves-for-service policy. With his recruiting drive in place, Sumter expected to have a much larger army by April. In the meantime, he set his sights on Fort Granby. A British outposts near a ferry on the Congaree River. The fort's commander was Major Andrew Maxwell, who commanded a garrison of about 300 loyalists. In February of 1782, Sumter learned that the fort was running low on stores. His small army, at the time, consisted only of about 280 men. He hoped he might capture the fort with just those men. Sumter's first effort was to paint some logs black to appear as if they were cannons And he called on the fort to surrender. The enemy commander, however, at least suspected this was a bluff and refused to do so. Sumter then ordered his men to charge the fort walls, but were easily repulsed. With that, Sumter settled in to besiege the fort, using rifle fire to harass the enemy garrison. He called on Colonel Marion to bring reinforcements to help take the fort. Marion never made it there. The siege began in February, before Lord Walden was forced to abandon nearby Camden, and Sir Alden dispatched 600 infantry, 200 cavalry, and two field artillery pieces as a relief force to break the siege. When Sumter learned the relief force was on its way, he did lift the siege and moved downriver to attack a Loyalist plantation instead. In early May, Sumter had raised a larger army— and he thought this would be a good time to renew his effort to take Fort Granby. He brought an army of between four and 500 men to renew the siege. Inside the fort, Major Maxwell had increased his garrison to about 340 Loyalists, and he had five or six cannons. Sumter sent a request to Green for artillery. Green sent one cannon. Realizing that the siege was mostly going to involve a lot of waiting until the garrison got hungry, Sumter left a small portion of his army there to continue the siege while he took the cannon and the bulk of his forces to attack the town of Orangeburg, more than a day's march to the south. Sumter's army arrived at Orangeburg on the night of May 10th. The following morning, a Loyalist garrison at Orangeburg under Colonel John Fish surrendered. This was a much smaller force of six officers and 83 men. Sumter also captured a valuable cache of supplies. Sumter sent the prisoners to General Greene, although the guards taking them apparently murdered some of the prisoners during the march. Sumter then took the remainder of his army to Fort Mott, where he thought Light Horse Harry Lee and Francis Marion were still holding the fort under siege. On his arrival, he learned that the Americans had already taken the fort and moved on, so Sumter returned to Orangeburg for a few more days. While Sumter was away at Orangeburg, Light Horse Harry Lee rode to Fort Granby with about four or five hundred infantry, as well as a cannon of their own. He had just taken Fort Mont, as I said, and he was aware that Fort Ralden was in the process of returning to Charleston. So, Lee fired on the fort at evening with his cannon and infantry, and the next morning, May 15th, Lee called on the garrison to surrender, something we covered last week. Maxwell agreed to surrender on two conditions. His men could keep the plunder that they had in the fort and that they could withdraw to Charleston on parole and wait there to be exchanged. The rest of the fort's stores would be turned over to the Americans. Lee agreed to the terms and permitted the enemy to depart with their horses and wagons. The Americans took the fort, as well as nearly 200 muskets and 9,000 cartridges, along with powder, lead, and flints. Sumter soon learned that Lee had ended the siege at Fort Granby he was upset at the terms given to the garrison and that he had, once again, been absent for the battle and missed out on the plunder. Sumter tried to submit his resignation around this time, citing trouble with his wounds. A few weeks earlier, Green had considered putting Sumter under arrest for his failure to come to Green's support at Hobkirk's Hill, but by this time Green thought better of it and realized the war effort would be best served by keeping Sumter in the field. So, to help mollify Sumter's hard feelings over missing the fall of Fort Granby, Green turned over to Sumter many of the slaves that had been captured in order that Sumter could pay his army. With their success in South Carolina, Patriots began to maneuver into a position that would allow them to recover most of Georgia as well. Savannah was too well garrisoned and with a naval support, meaning that it would be too difficult to recapture. But retaking the backcountry and forcing the British to crouch defensively around Savannah did seem like a good possibility, and the key to the Georgia backcountry was taking Augusta. Oh, Augusta had gone back and forth several times, as we've covered in previous episodes. Most recently, the Patriots threatened Augusta the previous fall when Georgia Colonel Elijah Clark launched an assault in September of 1780 before withdrawing after a few days. But by the spring of 1781. With the British Army mostly having left the South, Patriot leaders thought it was time to try again. By mid-April, several Patriot companies had established a fortified camp near Augusta. This small group primarily inquired intelligence about the town's defenses and harassed communications and supply lines. The Americans found that the Loyalists had constructed a pretty impressive defensive system. Fort Cornwallis became the primary defensive fort about 200 yards northwest of town. The garrison had cleared fields of fire around the fort. Its walls, cannons, and other barriers would require an overwhelming force in order to capture it. Two smaller forts, Gryerson and Galfin, also helped to secure the town. These smaller forts were more fortified houses. They could withstand a small raid, but not a full-on attack with hundreds of soldiers. Fort Grierson was only about a half mile from Fort Cornwallis, but Galfin was an isolated outpost about 12 miles away. In total, the British had about 236 provincial regulars and about 131 militia. There were also about 300 Native Americans with them. Some of these were warriors, but many of that 300 were women and children, and there were also about 200 slaves supporting the forts. The British commander was Thomas Burntfoot Brown. I've discussed Colonel Brown before. He had built a plantation near Augusta before the war, and he got his nickname when patriots literally burned the bottoms of his feet in an attempt to get him to go against the king and swear allegiance to the patriot cause. Brown had been forced to flee to Florida, where he formed a legion that maintained attacks on Georgia in the early part of the war. He returned to Georgia with the British Army in 1779 and was one of the most stalwart Loyalist leaders in the region. Like many Loyalist leaders, he had ordered the hanging of rebels and knew that he was literally fighting for his life, so he would not surrender easily. Over the next few weeks, Elijah Clark brought more Patriot reinforcements to threaten Loyalist supply lines. General Andrew Pickens moved a force of 400 Patriot militia in between Augusta and Fort 96, so that the Fort Garrison could not come to the relief of any attack on Augusta. General Green deployed Light Horse Harry Lee to join the militia gathering around Augusta. Lee had a force of several hundred that had just taken Fort Granby. His men were a mix of mounted soldiers and foot soldiers. When Lee got Green's orders, he was afraid that The garrison of Fort 96 would attack and disperse the militia around Augusta before his forces could get there. As a result, he rushed to the area. He had his mounted forces ride ahead then walk for a time, leaving their horses for the foot soldiers to catch up. These soldiers would then ride ahead of those walking and leave the horses and walk themselves. So this process of sharing the horses allowed his army to cover 75 miles of backcountry in only three days. With Lee's arrival, along with the forces already there, the Patriots had about 1,500 soldiers, about a third of whom were Continentals, and the rest being militia. The first target for the Patriots was the isolated outpost at Fort Galphin. It was named for its owner, George Galphin, who was also an Indian agent. As I said, it was more of a reinforced house than a full-blown fort, and it had about 100 defenders. A combined force under Clark and Lee attacked Fort Galvin on May 21st. The attackers used an old but effective trick. They made a weak attack on the fort and then retreated. The garrison sent out a patrol to ride down the attackers and kill them. Once the garrison rode out, a force of Continentals hiding nearby rushed into the fort and took possession rather quickly. About 10 of the attackers were wounded in the battle. The only fatal casualty on the American side was a man who died of heat stroke. After three or four defenders were killed, the garrison surrendered. The primary target of taking Galfin was to capture a large cache of supplies there, which were intended as gifts for local tribes. The larger forces at Fort Grierson and Cornwallis knew they were next. The commander at Grierson sent out a patrol the following day, managing to surprise a group of local militia, and capturing about 400 horses. The day after that, General Pickens and Colonel Lee brought a larger force to surround Grierson. Like Galfin, Grierson was named after the commander and property owner, Loyalist Colonel James Grierson. On May 24th, Patriot forces opened up on Grierson with field cannon and a militia charge. Back at Fort Cornwallis, Colonel Brown attempted to send a relief force but was driven back inside his fort walls by an enemy fire. The garrison at Fort Grierson had only a little over a hundred defenders and quickly recognized that they were outnumbered. Colonel Grierson and his men decided to flee the fort and tried to break through the enemy lines in an attempt to reach Fort Cornwallis, which, as I said, was about a half mile away. Now, a few dozen men actually managed to make it. The Patriots engaged the, with the fleeing garrison killing about 30 of them. According to battle accounts, many of those killed were trying to surrender, but were killed anyway. The Patriots did capture another 45 or so. They also captured the fort's two cannons, which would soon be used against Fort Cornwallis. Now, even isolated, Fort Cornwallis was much more defensible and had a larger garrison than the two forts already taken. The Patriots opted not to try to storm the fort, but settled in for a siege. As the siege began, the Patriots began building a tower near the fort in order to be able to fire over its walls. This was the same strategy that they used at Fort Watson, which I talked about last week, where the Patriots built a tower that was tall enough to allow riflemen to shoot over the fort walls and keep the enemy garrison pinned down. Brown sent one of his men to pose as a deserter in an effort to burn the tower while it was still being built, Colonel Lee, however, did not believe the man's story and had him arrested. There was also a small abandoned house near the tower that Brown had filled in with gunpowder in hopes of blowing up the house with the Americans surrounding it, but the Patriots managed to take the house and the powder without it blowing up. The Patriots spent a week digging trenches closer to the walls of Fort Cornwallis. Brown refused several calls to surrender, By June 2nd, the attackers had managed to take out the defenders' two cannons. Two days later, June 4th, Lee prepared for a final assault on the fort. Before launching his attack, Lee gave the defenders one final chance to surrender. Brown knew the end was near and only asked to surrender the following day since the fourth was the king's birthday. So Lee permitted the surrender to take place on the 5th. The terms of the surrender allowed Brown and his king's rangers to be released on parole and to return to Savannah. The militia in the fort, however, would be held as prisoners of war. Brown was so hated that he had to be escorted to Lee's tent under a guard of Continentals for fear that one of the Patriot soldiers would try to kill him during the surrender. The following day, Lee rode north with his Continentals to assist in the siege of Fort 96, The militia escorted Brown and his men back to Savannah, although several Patriot militia followed in an attempt to assassinate Brown. Despite their attempts, Brown made it back to Savannah, but others were not as lucky. Loyalist Colonel Grierson and his second-in-command, Major Henry Williams, were confined with their men and were to be given parole. Instead, several militia shot them, wounding Williams and killing Grierson. Afterward, the term Georgia Parole became used as a colloquialism for murder. And next week, we're going to follow Light Horse Harry Lee back to South Carolina, where he contends with the final British outpost in the backcountry, Fort 96. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters and the Alexander Hamilton Club. George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporter Lee Siam. Thanks also to John Resto for a one time gift via PayPal. I very much appreciate everyone who helps me to support this podcast. I very much rely on your financial support to keep this podcast going. Even a donation of as little as $2 per month will help. It also will give you early access to episodes and commercial free access support at the $10 per month or higher, gets you a Revolutionary War flag magnet each month. It's my way of saying thank you for supporting this podcast. I want to remind everyone that the American Revolution podcast is now part of the Airwave Media Network. The podcast is also in the process of moving to a new host from Podbean to Megaphone. We are also part of the Into History Network, which is a subscriber-based network, where you can listen to commercial-free and member-exclusive content from a range of history podcasts. For anyone who's interested, my online American Revolution Roundtable will meet on November 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. You can participate for free and anyone is welcome. Our topic of discussion this month will be Benedict Arnold. If you want a link to the event, you can email me The best way to keep up to date on these sorts of events is by joining my mailing list on MailChimp, and there's a link to do that on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. This week's episode is one that I've grappled with. Slavery in this period is a difficult issue overall. Sumter's decision to use captured slaves as a form of payment to fund his army was even controversial at the time. Most people in South Carolina did not have any qualms about slavery, but they did have problems with seizing property from other plantation owners, even if they were loyalists. There are revisionist historians today who point to policies like this to make the argument that the American Revolution was really about the perpetuation of slavery. Now that really doesn't make any sense to me, since there wasn't really any effort by the British to end slavery at this time either many slaves fled to the British when the opportunity presented itself, but that did not necessarily mean freedom for them. There are many cases where British soldiers simply sold captured slaves into other parts of the empire. And while some escaped slaves did eventually receive freedom, for the British this was more of an expedient of war than from any real motivation of morality. The reality is that the Revolution was not a war to maintain slavery, but it also really wasn't one to end slavery. It was about preventing the British government from denying the basic liberties to the British colonists. The unintended result of that dispute was that much of the American rhetoric led to the logical conclusion that slavery was in fact unjust. And that's what led to the growth of the abolitionist movement in both the U.S. and Britain in the generation that followed the one from the American Revolution but the South, and especially South Carolina, never really saw ending slavery as an option. Even though there were a few debates about freeing slaves to serve in the army, the South Carolina legislature never came close to allowing that. And although northern states ended slavery in the years after the revolution, the southern states did not. Our founders intentionally kicked the can on slavery, since we never could have become a United States If they had tried to force a single policy on all of the states at that time. Of course, that dispute would eventually lead to an even more bitter and bloodier war than the Revolution. The rhetoric of the Revolution began that debate, and it was a good debate to start, but it did not resolve it. In South Carolina, General Sumter was a hero. He went on to serve in the House and Senate after the war and had numerous locations throughout the South named after him including, of course, Fort Sumter, where the Civil War began. I didn't spend a great deal of time discussing the politics of Sumter's law in the main episode because it wasn't really a problem at the time. As I said, even General Green seemed to accept it as a war necessity. The priority was pushing Britain out of South Carolina. Pretty much anything that furthered that goal was acceptable. Much of our understanding of slavery today comes from the 19th century and the decades leading up to the Civil War. Understanding of slavery in the 18th century was different, and if that topic interests you, my book recommendation this week is Slavery and Freedom in the Age of American Revolution. The book is actually a series of essays by different authors looking at the experience of slavery during this period. So, if that interests you, check out Slavery and Freedom in the Age of the American Revolution. It's available, of course, on Amazon, but there is also a borrow-only copy on archive.org if you prefer to just take a look. My online recommendation is an older book called The Lives of Lee and Sumter by Cecil Hartley. This is essentially two biographies in one book, as was common at the time when it was published, which is 1859. Most of the book covers the life of Lighthorse Harry Lee, but there is a pretty substantial section on Thomas Sumter as well. It gives a perspective on these men from others in the pre-Civil War era. The book is a free download on archive.org, and as always, there are links to the book on my blog and website. My question this week asks, what role did Paul Revere serve during the American Revolutionary War? Well, of course, Revere is most famously known for his ride in 1775 warning Massachusetts that the British regulars were marching toward Lexington and Concord. Revere was an important part of the Sons of Liberty and regularly carried messages on their behalf. For details on the famous ride, check out episode 54 of this podcast. Revere also rode to New Hampshire to warn of a raid there, and you can hear about that in episode 51. During the siege of Boston, Revere could not return to his home in the British-occupied city. He traveled to Philadelphia, where he learned how to make gunpowder, and he then returned to New England, where he set up a powder mill. After the British evacuation of Boston, Revere served as a major and later a lieutenant colonel in the Massachusetts State Militia. After the war left Massachusetts in early 1776, Revere did not do much of anything. He was in charge of Castle William, which is the fort in Boston Harbor, and really saw no action after the British evacuation. After the Battle of Bennington, Revere escorted some British prisoners back to Boston. His militia regiment was called up in 1778 to take part in the attempt to capture Newport, Rhode Island, but he ended up not seeing any combat there. His main action during the later part of the war was the Penobscot Expedition of 1779, and he was later court-martialed for his role in that action. If you want more details on that, see episode 228. Revere never joined the Continental Army. He remained in the militia. Most of his time during the war was spent working at his trade in Boston as a silversmith. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast.